Welcome to the Shari Tzedek Podcast. I'm so glad you're here. Here you'll find a live recording of just about every sermon, Devar Torah, teaching, or story from our Arab Shabbat and High Holy Day services. We know that you wish you could be with us more often, and we understand life getting in the way is not a bad thing. To live Jewishly is to understand that just as important as it is that Judaism happens in the synagogue, it's even more important to live Jewishly in your home and on your way. So here we are, in your home, on your way, maybe even on your morning run. If you ever have any questions or want to continue the discussion, let one of us know, and make sure you check out our live stream and YouTube channel for more ways that Shari Tzedek is available to you on demand. Keep an eye on your shofar and email so that when you're able, you can be with us as well. Looking forward to seeing you soon. So last week, I shared with all of you the story that I'm going to share at this year's Rosh Hashanah Children's Service. So we're going to stick with that theme. And tonight, I'm going to share with you the story that I grew up hearing. And as I was growing up, it was the same story every year on Rosh Hashanah and the same story on Yom Kippur because the story was in the children's prayer book. And the story that my rabbi told every Rosh Hashanah was of a young man who sat in the back of his synagogue on Rosh Hashanah and while everyone else was saying the prayers of the service, he was playing his flute. Now, there's another version of the story that was not in the prayer book that I've also heard where the young man or the young woman in the back while everyone is reciting the prayers is going, Aleph, Bet, Vet, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, Vav, Zion, Chet, Tet, Yud, Kaf, Chaf, Lam, and Mem, Mem, Samachai, and Pei, Fei, Tzadi, Kufrei, Shem, Tzin, Tav, over and over and over again reciting the alphabet. We'll stick with both versions. Keep them in your heads as like a choose-your-own-adventure, part A, part B. They both end the same way. So what happens in the story is that the, um, the people in the congregation finally come up to the rabbi almost like they're letting the rabbi know that the sound on the live stream isn't working. And they say to the rabbi, this guy in the back is really disturbing our prayer. While we're trying to play, he's playing the flute or he's reciting the Olive Bet. So finally, the rabbi goes back and says, can you, can you tell me what we're doing? We're trying to have a service, but you're, you're distracting the other prayers. And this is where the young person says to the rabbi, I never learned how to read Hebrew. And either, so in the one version, my flute, I know how to play. And this is my way of praying. And I believe that God hears the music from my flute and understands that that's the prayer from my heart. The Aleph Bet version is, um, I guess, a little bit more um, of a punchline, right? I never learned how to read Hebrew, but I learned the Aleph Bet. My feeling is that if I say all the letters, God can put them together into the prayers as they're supposed to be. I like these stories, especially I share them with bar and bat mitzvah students often who are nervous about making mistakes in their Hebrew Mirabelle. I can't remember if I told you this story last week or not, but you heard it now. Um, and I tell the kids, if you make a mistake in the Hebrew, it's okay. It's more about what's in your heart than the words that come out of your mouths. And this story as a child 
celebrating Rosh Hashanah taught that even if we didn't know all the prayers, even if we were too young to have learned the Aleph Bet or hadn't learned it well yet, we could still pray. And I know that that lesson was not only heard by children as there were many parents, my mom included, who had never learned how to read Hebrew. The seventh chapter of Mishnah Sota shows us that the rabbis 2,000 years ago also understood that not everyone could pray in Hebrew. The second Mishnah begins, these are the prayers that can be recited in any language. And it goes on to list the Shema and the prayers surrounding it, along with the Amidah and Birkat Hamazon, the blessing that we say after the meal. Now, I know that many of you grew up with much more English in the services and much less Hebrew than we do at Shari Tzedek today. And while Reform Judaism was viewed by many as heretics for allowing so much prayer in the vernacular, our leading rabbis 2,000 years ago paved the way for the European and American reformers to allow prayer in people's native tongue. But the Mishnah continues and says that there are some prayers that must be said in Hebrew, with one example coming from this week's Torah portion. This week's Torah portion, Kitavo, contains the prayer that was said upon offering the first fruits to the temple. And it's the only written set prayer that we find in the Torah. Now, Shema, Be'ahavta, Michamocha also come from the Torah, but they're not commanded in the Torah as prayers. They're taken from the Torah and become prayers. But here we're told that when we bring the first fruits as an offering, these are the words that we are supposed to say. And they're words that might be familiar. They still exist in our Passover Haggadah, beginning with Arami, Oved, Avi, my father was a wandering Aramean. So the rabbis differentiate this formula from the other prayers, saying that these words commanded to be said as such in the Torah must be said in Hebrew. But elsewhere, in the seventh Mishnah of the third chapter of Bikurim, same book, different chapter, different rabbis, but they all got along with one another most of the time. Now we learn that even with these words of Arami Ovedavi, the words that have to be said in Hebrew, there was an understanding that the original Hebrew might be difficult. Originally, we read, all who knew how to recite would recite, while those who did not know how to recite, there were designated prompters who would read it for them and they would repeat the words. So early on, from the beginning, with the knowledge that some would know the Hebrew and some wouldn't. The ones who knew the Hebrew recited it. And for the ones who didn't, they had helpers. And it would be done repeat after me. Kind of like we do the vows at a wedding, right? Where we say a couple of Hebrew words and then the couple repeats. But the Mishnah continues. There were people who refrained from bringing gifts. So they decreed that the prompters should read the words for everyone and everyone would repeat after them. If I was the one who had to repeat after the prompter, I was embarrassed to go. 
because then everyone would know that I didn't know Hebrew. So instead, the rabbi said, everyone will repeat after the prompter so that there's no differentiation made between those who know and those who don't, and everyone will be comfortable. Now, sometimes we do sing things repeat after me, right? We talked about the vows for a wedding. There are other songs that Cantor sings that have repeat after me sections. Everyone loves the Lidorvador, Lidorvador. And more people sing that one, by the way, than anything else we do. Cantor is not the biggest fan. Um, you can't see her face. I wish I could. But as I was thinking about what I wanted to, to teach tonight, it wasn't repeat after me. Because we have another tool that helps equalize our service between those who read Hebrew and those who don't read Hebrew. And the experience today for someone who walks into a synagogue not knowing how to read Hebrew, I think is very different than it was just a couple decades ago. So let me start by giving you a little bit of background. Sometimes I have fun doing research, and then you have to bear with me while I share what I learned. Um, and I have to give you a little background first. Eliezer ben Yehuda. And anyone who's been to Israel knows the name Ben Yehuda because Ben Yehuda Street is that most busy, it's a pedestrian street in Jerusalem with tons of shops and restaurants and they overcharge for everything because they know that it's only tourists that buy anything on Ben Yehuda. Eliezer Ben Yehuda moved his entire family to Jerusalem in 1881. And when Ben Yehuda moved to what was then called Palestine, the languages spoken were Yiddish, Ladino, a mix of Hebrew and Spanish, German, Arabic, whatever other languages people had come from, but no Hebrew. Hebrew was used for reading Torah, Hebrew was used for prayer, but Hebrew was not a viable spoken language. But Ben Yehuda was determined to make it so. He modernized the language. He added a modern gram grammatical structure. He created words for things that weren't created yet, words that actually make Hebrew quite easy to learn, words like telephone and chocolat. And Ben Yehuda turned his family into an experiment. He raised his son Itamar ben Avi, a less known street in Israel, but equally important, because Itamar ben Avi Street is the street that I lived on when I lived in Israel for a year. So he raised his son Itamar ben Avi speaking only Hebrew, which led to a very lonely life for poor Itamar, because no one else in Israel spoke Hebrew. But Itamar ben Avi and his father spoke Hebrew with each other. And Ben Yehuda has that big street named after him because he is known as the father of modern Hebrew today. And by the next generation, his experiment had spread. Hebrew was becoming a spoken language, and Israel was filling with Hebrew speakers. In the 1920s, newspapers began to be published in Hebrew, and Itamar ben Avi, the son of Eliezer ben Yehuda, decided that he was going to publish his own newspaper. It was called Hashavua HaPalestini. But he did something different than all the other newspapers. Every other Hebrew newspaper, of course, was written in Hebrew letters. 
But Itamar ben Avi printed his newspaper writing the Hebrew words using the Latin or Roman alphabet, which is the alphabet that we're all used to today. Now, there were many influential Zionists, including Zev Jabotinsky, who supported using the Roman Latin alphabet as the written Hebrew language in Israel. But ultimately, the classic Hebrew alphabet won out and is used in, for modern use today. And yet, even as that was taking place in the secular Israeli world, from the 1920s and through most of the 20th century, as we look back to the religious use of Hebrew, even in the reform movement, a potential use for this alphabet was missed. So I brought, you're not really going to be able to see, um, but maybe we'll, we'll take a little trip down memory lane. You know I love doing this. This is the first reform prayer book adopted by the reform movement. Not the first reform prayer book in America. The first prayer book was called Minhag America. Isaac Mayer Wise thought this would be a prayer book that would work for everyone. There was no reform movement. It would be everyone's prayer book. Um, it had no transliteration. It was only Hebrew. The Union Prayer Book, I believe, only has transliteration for Shema. Every other time there's Hebrew, it is only Hebrew that's written. Then we get to the book that I grew up with, Gates of Prayer, or Gates of Blue, as we called it in rabbinical school. This is my bar mitzvah prayer book. And again, when we open it, we see only Hebrew. Now, Gates of Prayer made a change, and this was true of um, Gates of Repentance, that red Moxor, the High Holy Day prayer book that we're used to. After This book opens left to right. I have to remember that. In the back of the book, you had to turn all the way to the back of the book to find transliteration for the Hebrew. Again, think of that visitor to the temple who had to listen to the prompter while others were reading the Hebrew. It was very clear who didn't know Hebrew if they were all the way in the back of the book while everyone else was on the page that the rabbi was calling. And I know growing up, my rabbi did not say, if you need transliteration, it's on page 778. Then, with the new revised Gates of Prayer, or Gates of Gray, as we call it in rabbinical school, a change was made, and the transliteration was brought onto the page underneath the Hebrew, but only for the prayers that were most commonly said or sung by the congregation. And then, with our newest prayer book, which I don't have, <laughs> Mishkan Tefillah, and Mishkan HaNefesh, which is what we use for our High Holy Days, our Machsor, it was really a, a, big in, a big innovation that every single time there's Hebrew, there's transliteration next to the Hebrew, and a literal translation of the Hebrew underneath. So you always know how to say what's being said, whether you read Hebrew or not, and you always know the meaning of what's being said. Not every rabbi was in favor of this. Why would anyone learn Hebrew if the transliteration is right there? Mirabel, by the way, is not going to be looking at the transliteration tomorrow. 
even though it's in her book. But ultimately, like the rabbis of the Mishnah, I think most rabbis came around and realized that if there were people who were uncomfortable in our services because they don't know how to read Hebrew, we should do everything that we can to make them comfortable. So here we are 10 days until Rosh Hashanah, and I know that while many of you are extremely comfortable with our service, some who read Hebrew, some who don't, others are not. And many of those who join us for the High Holy Days, whether in person or streaming, might be even less comfortable. So at Shari Tzedek, we do everything we can to make sure that everyone is as comfortable in our services as they can be. It's not just about the Hebrew, it's about every aspect of the service. The rabbis knew that bringing this offering to the temple was a big deal, and people didn't have to do it. So they wanted to remove the obstacles. We know that coming to services today for so many is not a given, and we too want to remove these obstacles. Of course, we would love for people to learn Hebrew, and for anyone who doesn't know how to read and wants to, Cantor is going to be teaching a, an adult Hebrew reading class that's starting at the end of September. But not knowing how to read Hebrew is never a reason to stay away from this sanctuary. So I pray that as we enter the year 5782, we think about all of the obstacles, not just that keep us from this sanctuary, but the obstacles that keep us from getting to where we want to be in this next year. And I pray that we play our flutes proudly or recite our Aleph Bet with confidence, that we trust in God, that God will be pleased with us if we're doing our best with what we've been given, as long as we're pushing ourselves to grow, learn, and improve, praying with our hearts, even that which our mind can't comprehend. Kenya Hiratson, may this be God's will. Amen.